Hello everyone, uh, this is Andrew Young and welcome to uh, another edition of the Econ Weekly podcast, recording today on April the 30th, 2022. And I'm joined, um, as always, by the publisher of Econ Weekly, Jay Shabitz. So, Jay, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. Had a, a busy week this week. Uh, not only all the earnings coming through, uh, which I know we're going to be talking about today, um, but just also I've spent a lot of my time listening to the 16 or 17 hours of, uh, of hearings and testimony with the Surface Transportation Board <laughs> and uh, very unhappy rail shippers. Um, very, very interesting session. I think we're talking about um, a, a, a customer supplier relationship that is is not really on the ropes and um, it's really kind of been taken very seriously by the administration. Um, the, the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, was actually kind of at the hearing, did an opening statement. And um, I think, you know, issues with service that seems to be affecting various shippers, manufacturers um, in particular, um it's um you know got to the point where the government is stepping in and people are being hauled over the coals um so yeah that's kind of one of the things that i spent way too much time this week uh doing and listening to but i mean it's a it's a really interesting insight into part of the uh the economy uh, today yes um, and, I, and i uh listened to uh most of that 20 hour uh hearing as well for uh for the railroad newsletter and uh indeed it was it was quite a grilling um, the railroads are, <laughs> they, and it's um, something that uh, the, a lot of shippers say is really disrupting their businesses. And, you know, they're arguing that it's even disrupting the U.S. economy. Uh, they, the railroads just simply don't, um, I mean, I think the, what, what they, the railroads say is, is they just don't have the, have the labor um, because of all the disruptions that have gone on. And uh, they, uh, you know, promise that it's going to be uh, relieved before long, but we'll see. Well, yes, I, most of the discussion is about how they are going to fill the, the the empty positions that they need to fill to be able to actually deliver their their planned service. Um, but yes, a lot of the themes that we we speak about each week, um, the labour shortages, the uh, kind of that mismatch between supply and demand, um, the uh, the fact that companies are really coming out of a period of uncertainty, getting rid of lots of lots of jobs and then having to rehire in an environment where the supply really is just not there. So um, it'd be interesting to read more of that in Railroad Weekly. So the, the sister publication that you you also are uh, are getting out the door this uh, this weekend. Yep. Yep. That'll be it as well. Okay, so well, let's let's start as as we always do with I guess the the, the larger picture around around the economy. Um, some more interesting kind of figures coming out today around um, the health of the economy, um, from from gloom and doom to uh, to to green shoots of optimism. So maybe kind of just talk us through what what we've been hearing this week and, and what's your insight. Right, a lot of new data that came out this week. Uh, the biggest, uh, the one that was most closely watched probably was uh, the Commerce Department's GDP figure. So GDP is just the, uh, you know, the total amount that, uh, of basically how much the economy is producing for any given quarter. 
And uh, the headline number really uh, threw, threw, threw a curveball at people because it was actually a decline. So, so the GDP actually shrank 1.4% year over year in the first quarter. And that was a bit of a shock. Um, now, the fourth quarter, so the, so the previous three months, um, we had a somewhat opposite shock. We had a 6.9% year-over-year growth, which was kind of more than anyone expected. So I think, I think what's happening here is uh, there's a little bit of sort of fuzziness in the numbers. Um, fuzziness, maybe not, not the right term, but it's, uh, it, there, there's a lot of volatility in the numbers, let's say. So there's one thing that people, a lot of economists have been focusing on is uh, there's a line in there about inventories. Um, and so part of the G, you know, GDP is just, it's, it's basically a mathematical formula. And the, the way that, it, that business inventories have moved around in the last two quarters have kind of been a little screwy. Um, but if you look at sort of the most, compo- the most important components of the GDP equation or really the most important components of the economy, which is, you know, what are consumers spending, what are households spending, and two, what are businesses spending, what are they investing in? Um, those look very healthy. So the, the, the bottom line is that, you know, don't put too much stock into the GDP numbers. Um, now, we can, there's, there are other reasons to be concerned, which we'll, we'll get to, um, but that 1.4% decline in the first quarter, not, not really anything to be too alarmed about. Um, in fact, yeah, the, as I mentioned, um, you know, spending, uh, household spending was up almost 3% year over year, um, a little bit less, you have to subtract imports from that, but, um, you know, all, all just, all, I say that all as a, as an aside, I mean, bottom line is that, that there's definitely strength here. And if you don't believe the GDP numbers, just listen to corporate America, you know, this is, we're in the thick of earnings seasons, right? Season right now. And just one company after the after another is saying, you know, look, it's people are still spending. Uh, General Motors says, you know, demand for cars is still strong. Uh, the banks and the credit card companies all say, look, we we can, you know, we can see the money moving out. People are spending. So so there's that. Uh, the kind of the way I put it is the, the economy right now is uh, the economy right now is kind of like a fortress, but the fortress is under heavy sustained gale force, hurricane force winds. And um, by that, I mean, there's just a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of things that are pressuring the consumer. Now inflation, of course, being the one that's getting the most attention. Now there were new inflation numbers that came out as well. Um, The PCE index, which is one that the Fed likes to look at a lot. Um, that is just like the, the other popular index, which is the CPI that, that also showed some measure of easing in the inflation rate. So just to give an example, if you take out, you know, some economists like to take out food and energy because it's, uh, you know, it's just so volatile. You don't know if energy could collapse tomorrow, energy prices, and no one would be surprised. Um, so if you just look at sort of the core stuff, um, the month to month rate, was just you know 0.3% rise. And uh, the annual rate was, uh, what was that? Um, I think uh, 5.2% ex-food and energy. So, and that's for March. Um, so comparing it to the year before up five, 5.2%. So that's still more than double the 2% target that the Fed has, but it's not you know these double digit rates that we've been hearing recently. So a little bit of good news there. However, 
inflation is still very much a problem for for companies for consumers um so you know it's not something to just brush aside uh at the same time we've got supply chain pressures which are in some respects easing you know you hear the auto companies talk about the semiconductor uh, strains getting a little bit you know moderating a little bit that's good um on the other hand what's happening in china with all these factory import closures that's a, that potentially is a, is a very, very serious setback uh, for the supply chain. And then you have, of course, the Ukraine war, um, you know, back here in the U.S., you have the labor markets are still very tight. You also have, you know, workers are now, if you adjust for inflation, worker wages are now down 4% year over year. They were in the first quarter. So you have people spending, but doing so by dipping into their savings. Now, they still have a lot of savings because of, you know, all the relief they received during the pandemic, you know, the stimulus checks and whatnot, and also because of the good job market. So there's, there's money there, but, you know, the wages are going down now if you adjust for inflation. Uh, here's a good stat from, um, there's a company called Synchrony, I think they're called, they, they do a lot of credit cards and whatnot. And they said that uh, about two thirds of American consumers have, um, spent either only a portion of the stimulus money that they received or the entire amount. But then the other third have um, the, did I get that wrong? Oh, excuse me. I said two thirds, either only a portion or they still have the whole, all of their stimulus saved. And then one third said that they've spent it all. So that's, you know, if two thirds have still have stimulus savings left and the job market's still good, that shows you that, you know, there's still some spending momentum there okay yeah well it, it yeah. suggests that there's a there's a cushion there for sure and that, yes. that shows admirable discipline as well <laughs> amongst the the, the population yeah, yeah yeah quite a quite a well you know upper income you know there's upper income people that have seen a lot of uh you know uh gains in their housing wealth and, and whatnot and their stock market wealth which of course is you know a, trans, a good segue to the uh, sort of the next big headwind, which is uh, that we can talk about, which is how a lot of these asset prices are now falling. You know, housing prices are, are, our housing demand is certainly um, starting to slow. There's, there's no two ways about that. Uh, the stock market is now doing very poorly. I think that particularly if you're um, buying tech stocks, the Nasdaq uh, is, is down something like twenty percent since the start of the year. Um, all of those. You know, all those fashionable stocks like the, uh, I remember those, uh, what is it, the, uh, the SPACs and, the, uh, and then the, yes. uh, the whole crypto market, all that stuff is, you know, is just nothing, nothing what it was. It has all declined. So that's, you know, potentially another headwind for the, for, for the consumer. There's also, you know, there's talk of a trucking slowdown, some, you know, disputes about that. But uh, it, it's almost as if the, you know, for, 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 the better part of you know four decades, we had a situation where asset prices keep going up. You know, stock market, house housing market, the, the bond market um, was all you know was all very strong. You had rising prices, but the prices of goods and services that people buy were not rising. Now you kind of have the opposite, where the asset prices are falling, but the goods and service prices are increasing. So we're in like a completely different world. How long this new world lasts, or where it goes tough to say. Uh, and then all of this is a good, you know, is a good way to, or a good prelude 
to the big story of this upcoming week, which is the Federal Reserve's next meeting. They meet about roughly every six weeks, and they're going to be meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, by you know, almost assuredly, they will raise interest rates. Uh, the question is, by how much? Uh, who knows? Maybe with inflation, you know, the latest inflation data showing a little bit of you know slight easing, and with all of these headwinds we've talked about, maybe they won't be as aggressive as some some think. I mean, maybe they'll do another quarter point. Um, you know, maybe half is probably, I believe that's kind of where the consensus is. Um, but that's, uh, that will be the big decision. That's what everybody in the, you know, in the world of economics will be watching for on Wednesday when the decision is announced. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And of course, you know, the, the information coming through is never making the Fed's job easier. Um, whatever, um, they anticipated from the last meeting. They may be right. doing. Isn't information supposed to provide clarity, but it winds up providing just, it winds up making everything more cloudy. So out of interest, uh, Jay, you, you, you've listened to a lot of earnings calls this week from various sectors. Um, I mean, I think generally you summed it up as everybody has an optimistic outlook for the remainder of this year. Did, was there any reference to whether the Fed would aid or um, actually harm those those outlooks, depending on decisions that were made, or, or did they steer away from any kind of macro um, positioning? Yeah, well, it was definitely talked about. I mean, specifically uh, or especially in, in the banking sector, for example, finance sector, because you know, anytime the Fed changes policy like that, when they move rates, it's going to affect a banking's business very directly. So there was a uh, you know, I, I don't think there was there was um, any sense of foreboding or uh oh, you know, the, the rates are going to rise, so the economy is going to crash. I mean, I, I think it's more of a wait and see attitude. Uh, you know, I think what the, the very a very common sentiment among let's say manufacturers um, is that look, consumers are st- everything we see right now is that people are still buying our stuff, but we acknowledge that. The Fed is doing this, and you know this is happening here with the housing market, and this is happening here with the stock market. Um, so we're cautious, but uh, that's yeah, that's kind of the overriding sentiment. Yeah. Okay. So you talk about buying our stuff. Well, let's let's kind of hone in on one of the areas that we looked at in this week's uh, edition, which is around the the automotive sector. Um, a lot of a lot of information coming through not just earnings reports but other data points as well uh, i know we cover kind of a lot of the, the leading manufacturers there i guess some mixed stories as well i think real positive outlook in terms of demand um you mentioned the semiconductor issue which was curtailing production seems to be kind of over the hill but then we have you know stories such as you know ford's quite shocking um, results um, as a result of some of their investments in the EV or is autonomous uh, uh, manufacturer Rivion and um, and then what's happening with Tesla. So lots going on in the automotive sector um, in the last week or so. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I should say the, the, the auto sector is is such a critical part of the U.S. economy. Uh, it's, you know, e- even in t- today's world, I mean, you know, maybe arguably, maybe it was even more important in the 1950s or 60s, but it still just employs so many people. And it's such a large part of consumer spending. Uh, I mean, just think about not only the auto manufacturers themselves, 
but all the suppliers and then the dealers, I mean, just drive around whatever community you live in and you'll see, you know, lots of auto dealerships with lots of people working there. It's just a very important part of the economy. So it's, it's and, and their story, as we've talked about in past podcasts and past issues is that, you know, the, the demand very good, supply very tight, which is somewhat of a metaphor for the economy as a whole right now. But um, clearly, you mentioned the semiconductor thing um, is, is still, you know, very much issue, even if getting a little better. Uh, yeah, you mentioned, you know, Rivian is one of these uh, electric car startups, um, kind of in the mold of Tesla, but but newer. And, uh, you know, they're just starting to, to get their cars on the road. And a year ago, they were like, you know, so many other, you know, high flying tech stocks, they were everybody wanted to put their money into these companies. Um, and so their stock market, you know, went, went nuts. And now just the opposite is happening. Um, there's just kind of a reversal of, of sentiment there. So Rivian stock is way down. That Ford took a big, big accounting loss on that. But just to be clear, Ford's underlying business was is still, you know, pretty healthy. They still, you know, made a made a as as far as I don't know offhand, but I but I I assume they they still made a healthy operating profit if you exclude that accounting loss from Rivian. Um, Amazon, interestingly, they also own a piece of Rivian, and they also took an accounting loss because of because of because of that. So um, you know, it's not something to completely ignore, but it doesn't really speak much about how these companies are doing. It's just more of an accounting thing. Yeah, and I guess, yes. And the, and it just got so inflated in terms of its value that when it came, I guess it comes back to earth, back to, right. you know, corrected level. It, it just kind of shows up on the books. Yeah, the the Amazon investment in Rivian, yes, I is an interesting point because, you know, Another auto manufacturer like Ford, you can see some logic there. It's within the same kind of uh, part of the, um, uh, if you like, the value chain. But of course, Amazon's investment was because they are a customer. They will use those vehicles as part of their, you know, distribution um, system. So that was an interesting investment um, where, you know, it's kind of... um, it's like Walmart taking a, an investment in a, a truck manufacturer, um, which, you know, we, we, we don't see. So that was really kind of a, maybe a reflection that wanting to get involved in the design uh, to make sure it fitted what Amazon's huge requirements would be. Um, or maybe it was uh, an identification of to make sure they got the supply, uh, maybe identifying a supply challenge. And um, I think there was a, more, more news about, Electric vehicles and supply came out this week regarding lithium, um, obviously a key component of electric batteries. And uh, I think a realization that may, maybe supply could be an issue downstream as we start to tip into more electric vehicles compared to internal combustion engine, you know, traditional carbon burning engines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, so the auto industry is going through this epic shift from, uh, you know, ICE engines, internal combustion engines, which, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what the manufacturers have been producing for a century. Um, and now we're moving to an era of electric batteries and, and all the manufacturers are just like 100% in on this. They're, they're all just investing billions and billions and billions of dollars to make this shift. Uh, and Tesla, of course, is the leader. In, in electric vehicles. And they still, 
uh, from what I understand, their, their software, their engineering, their battery technology is still like well ahead of, of, of everyone else. Uh, but there is a concern, um, like so much about the economy these days, uh, are we going to be able to make this transition given the shortage of what we need, you know, supplies and, and lithium is, is a big example of that because you need lithium to make the batteries and um, there's, you know, the price of lithium has just gone like like so many other commodities have gone, gone up a lot. And that's, um, I think Tesla said it was their fastest growing cost item in percentage terms. So what do you do? I mean, are you going to, uh, you know, how are you going to accomplish this if you don't have enough of, you know, how do you make a battery if you don't have enough of what you need to make a battery? So, so Tesla, you know, they made the point that there's no shortage of lithium in the world. I mean, it exists in abundance. However, it does need to be refined and that requires some investment. And there's just not enough of that right now. So it'd be interesting, maybe Tesla, you know, they, they have a reputation for themselves kind of, you know, taking things in house, maybe they'll, they'll invest in a lithium plant or something. But uh, I mean, they certainly do have their own battery plants. Uh, and um, that's an open question of, you know, will the, there's all these lofty targets about, you know, we're going to have, I, I was listening to Ford just before the Ford earnings call just before, um, the, before we get on here. And I believe they said, you know, by 2030, we want half of our sales to be electric vehicles. I don't quote me on that, but it's just from memory. And, you know, big question is, well, is that even achievable if you don't have enough lithium, you don't have enough this, you don't have enough that. Yes, I, well, I, absolutely. Um, I, I agree. And, and, you know, upstream from that, and this isn't really Ford's responsibility, this becomes almost a, a government one, uh, which is, you know, you need the infrastructure to support this huge new community of electric assets, um, you know, charging stations. I think we, we discussed in an earlier episode um, about the fact that, you know, not, not every person that owns an electric vehicle will have a house. Um, they could be part, it could be in an apartment block. There's, there's not necessarily the infrastructure in place for all of the charging that would be required. And then of course, you know, the highway system as well. We spoke last week about what's the future of gas stations uh, going forward. Um, there's, there's a large shift that needs to happen and you know, this should be happening in concert with the uh, the fact that electric vehicles are getting more and more, uh, you know, higher and higher proportion of the of, of the vehicle fleets out there. I'm hoping that's happening. I'm not sure I'm seeing a great deal of evidence. Um, so maybe, you know, something really for the planners to, to start to take a little bit more seriously. Right, right. And at the same time, the... Uh you know, as, as far as the, the oil economy goes or the, you know, the, what we're trying to transition away from, there are, of course, shortages there too, not just in oil, but there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about how oil companies um, can't even, they want to produce more, some of them, but they can't because they can't get the inputs they need for, you know, their drilling wells or whatever, you know, something might be, they might, they can't get their hands on some part or some, you know, some pipeline or something. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, that's, that is the theme, you know, if there's one big theme 
about the uh, the U.S. economy in the pandemic era and now kind of moving into the post-pandemic era, it's that uh, we have serious supply side constraints. Yes, and and things need to be working together. Um, you know, we don't have a centrally planned command economy in the United States, uh, so it's uh, you know commercial operators um, and uh, you know a need for maybe a little bit more collaboration um, to ensure that we can meet the the overall requirements. Well, yeah. we'll see. I think it's it's going to be an interesting theme, um, which is going to get a lot more attention. Yeah, for sure. No, and, and you know, in a, in a capitalist economy, adjusts well to this kind of thing. In in you know, in in most cases, it's you know, if there's a shortage of lithium, you, for for long enough, or shortage of oil, you can be sure that there's going to be investment in, in that area, and eventually, you know, it'll it, it should solve itself. But the sometimes, you know, in certain cases, you have situations where, you know, you just simply you can invest in it because the, the material is not the, the appropriate material is not available or or whatnot. So, you know, it's yes. uh, right. It's or, or or you know, perfect example is okay. So we you know don't have enough port capacity in Los Angeles. Well, there's no entrepreneur that can go build another port. <laughs> there are some clever, uh, you know, interesting. You would be familiar with this, Andrew, from the railroad industry. There, you know, there's some new. Um, some ports in Mexico that some of the railroads are trying to use and shipping companies are starting to use to try to move things from, let's say, China to Chicago via the ports in Mexico rather than Los Angeles because they have more space. So there's there's definitely, um, you know, the, the capitalist spirit is at work for sure, but it's yep. not going to be a substitute for, you know, the ports of Los Angeles. And, you know, there's nobody that can build another port or, you know, that's, that's, that involves a lot of government planning and whatnot. So um, open question, you know, yeah. how persistent these supply chains will be. Will there be enough relief in over the next, you know, coming months, coming years? Uh, you know, big, that's a big question for the economy. Uh, it, um, absolutely, I'm on, I know we'll be coming back to you on a on a fairly regular basis. So, yes. <laughs> what, uh, there's a topic that we don't tend to talk about a great deal that we did focus on in in this week's edition, and that's um, which I'd describe as the prison uh, economy. So, correctional facilities um, throughout the country, um, probably not the hottest topic for, for most people, but this actually has quite a um, quite an interesting economic um, story around it, which uh, you were going into some detail on, both in terms of just nationally, and I think also you, you kind of pinpointed that at one particular uh, location. Our, our target city of the of this week is, is Susanville. Um, so, you know what? What? What is? What is the story around? What we, I can only describe as the prison prison economy. Right, right. So the this exactly so the city of, of this week's issue, the, the profiled city is Susanville, California, which is in a rural area up in the northeast of the state. Um, the closest city would be Reno, Nevada, but that's still about an hour and a half drives away, drive away. Uh, it's pr- pretty remote out out there. Uh, and their economy is almost entirely dependent on three pres- prisons. So two run by the state of California and one run by the federal government. Now, one of the state prisons is 
slated for closure. They announced it last year and it's going to close in, is it June? Uh, so very soon is that, uh, yeah, it's, you know, within, within, within a month and a half. So they, um, th this, this economy of Susanville is pretty small town is, is in total shock. Um, they don't know what to do. So half of all employment in this town is, is directly with the prisons. And then, you know, probably most of the rest is still in some ways associated with the prisons. So if you think about, you know, even the local Walmart, uh, the, the, you know, the spending there depends on, you know, the incomes that are earned from the, from the prison jobs. Um, the prison jobs are good jobs. I mean, if you're um, good, good in a monetary sense, I mean, if you're working as a prison guard, you're represented by, you know, one of the most powerful unions in the country. Uh, and, um, you know, you can, you could definitely make a you know good middle-class living and the cost of living in Susanville is not San Francisco. It's not what you think of as, you know, California type cost of living. So, um, you, you have that, but, but a big chunk of it's disappearing when, when that, uh, you know, when that prison closes. So what do you do? I mean, it's, it's a really difficult issue. They used to have, uh, uh, lumber was a big issue. It was a big employer there back, you know, years ago. But the last sawmill closed in 2004, I think it was. Um, so there's really not a whole much, whole lot left. So people are leaving. So that's you know, real estate prices are going down. Um, and you know, there's some people. Yeah, if you're, you know, if you're a lawyer or a software engineer, and you don't really care about where you live, yeah, you can easily move. But um, only something like 10% of Susanville's workforce has a, uh, or adult population has a college degree. So there are a lot of people that are, you know, in difficult straits and, uh, you know, what's, what's the answer. And, and of course you have, when, when you have something like this happening, you have an erosion of the tax base. So then all of the municipal services, whether it be, you know, police and fire protection or, you know, the local parks or enforcing zoning co codes and, you know, everything that, that local governments do, I mean, there's just no budget for that anymore. You have to, you know, it's a slash budget. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's pretty, pretty difficult circumstance. Yeah, I, I, and that, that curse of being so dependent on one industry or one company, we spoke about my, uh, the coal industry in West Virginia in, a, in an earlier episode. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a problem. And then trying to get diversification tends to be a, a race against time before all of those negative impacts start to kind of put you into a bit of a downward spiral. I, um, and what, what happened, sorry to, to interrupt there, Andrew, but I uh, just wanted to explain that what happened in the uh, sort of in the 80s and 90s, uh, there was um, the U.S. just started imprisoning a lot more people. The sentencing laws got tougher, you know, so people were just put in jail for a lot longer. There was, you know, the, the, the people get about half of all people in federal and state prisons are there for drugs. So they're, you know, not there for stealing anything or doing anything violent. They're just there for drugs. Um, and uh, so you had a huge swelling of the prison population. So you had these places, you mentioned West Virginia is a good example, um, other rural areas across the United States that sort of tapped into this as, as a growth industry of sorts. So a place in West Virginia that may have lost their coal mines said, okay, we'll build a prison. And that is a, you know, that that's in some ways a, not, not a terrible idea because, you know, those, you create a lot of good jobs, 
you're getting a lot of federal money that and state money that pours into your community. Um, however, what's happened more recently is incarceration rates are just way down. So a lot fewer people are being imprisoned now in the U.S. And this is kind of a new trend. And so that's why California is able to close um, this prison. And I should say this, this, uh, this one prison that's closing was built in the 60s. So it wasn't, you know, it was a little bit before um, the, the period I just described. But in any case, the point is, is, uh, you know, that, that sort of prison growth industry doesn't really exist anymore. Um, there are two publicly traded companies, which we talk about in this issue. Uh, in the latest issue that comes out this weekend. Uh, there, there are two private prison companies and they have contracts with the federal government. Um, so some of this stuff is, is actually outsourced to them. Um, they also do a lot of work for you know, the immigration facilities like detention facilities on the Mexican border and things like that. So there's, you know, there's some areas of, of, of growth there, but um, the, yeah, these, these companies, you know, in their earnings calls, they, it's interesting, you can listen to them talk about how they're dealing with a declining prison population and prisons that are closing all over the U.S. No, that's true. Yes. I mean, that's it. The, the, the demand, the capacity requirement is, is reducing. Um, it's a structural change, I guess, to their industry. But what's interesting is the if you think of the, the sector that they're in, shouldn't just be viewed as correctional. I mean, you, you mentioned the work at the border. I mean, you would imagine there will be growth in other areas such as, you know, handling, asylum, um, immigration, all those kind of um, other processes, which maybe are less formalized than kind of, if you like, the, the prison and justice system. But the immigration system is also going to, I think, maybe be, a, be an, op <laughs> an opportunity, uh, if you look at it in pure commercial business terms, for, for them to extend into. That probably doesn't help places like Susanville, because this activity might have to be in different locations, such as in the border areas. Um, so it's, you know, it's in interesting to see um, kind of what will happen, both from a company perspective that's involved in this industry and also all those, um, all those places, all those towns and regions that, that you know, invested in this in the past and uh, are now having to face, you know, a, a decline. Yeah, yeah. All right. So um, I think yeah. the other thought I got is, well, you know, there is always new areas of diversification that is coming up. I mean, we, we just spoke earlier about kind of the, the lack of lithium uh, processing and um, lot, lots of kind of potential in the future, looking at new, 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 new technologies, new economies that are there. Um, uh, it's really I think it demonstrates the importance of people that work in the local economic development um, organizations, both at the state level and also even in the private sector, land development. Um, it's really kind of picking up where the next big uh, demand is going to be um, and getting there, getting there first with that. Right. Um, and if you're an economic development official, sort of the big, you know, sort of hot areas right now are, you know, get yourself an Amazon warehouse or, you know, Walmart warehouse. Um, get yourself some healthcare facilities. I mean, that's, you know, they're going up all over the place. Uh, so there are opportunities, or even if you're in a place like West Virginia or, you know, Appalachia more generally, and even more broadly, the South, uh, the electric vehicle revolution, what we talked about earlier, is a big opportunity because um, there's been a lot of investment in new factories. Uh, now, that's, there's a separate discussion that to be had, you know, alongside that of whether or not, you know, 
the as as it happens, producing an electric vehicle takes less labor than producing an ICE vehicle. So it's you know I'm not sure that it's that benefit for for the workforce, but sure if you're a community in Kentucky or um, you know Tennessee, you know two places that have just won huge new you know factory contracts, that's uh, definitely an opportunity. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and it kind of, you know, we spoke earlier about downward spirals. You also get uh, the opposite there. You start to develop what is like a cluster um, where other companies are attracted to the, the fact that, you know, not only is other companies there in that sector, but the, the skilled workforce and then the other supporting elements, different universities will start to have programs um, associated with that particular industry so that it and you know builds up the feedstock of, of workers into that sector and um you know you look at places like the gulf coast where the you know the growth of the chem chemical industry it, it really will um catalyze um development of of an industrial sector um yeah. or sometimes the service sector i mean you see that kind of in, in the healthcare healthcare side as well don't you where yes uh, yes and even and it's sort of the big the biggest prize of all for these economic development officials if you can get some you know hot young software company that's going to grow into the next google or amazon um there's an interesting story about austin texas which is you know we always say that's that's the hottest economy in the united states right now and really a, a big part of the explanation there is that when Dell, uh, the which you know isn't considered such a sexy company anymore, but um, at the time you know Dell was 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 the hot thing in software and computing, um, and the uh, they when they did their IPO back in was it the eighties or nineties I don't remember, but they did their public their first public stock offering and they just created a lot of millionaires and a lot of that money from those newly minted millionaires got plowed back into new software companies. And some of those became, you know, did their own IPOs years later. And so that sort of created a big, um, De Dell's, the development of Dell had a big impact on, on Austin's future development. And so there's always, you know, there's always that dream among economic development officials that, uh, you know, we can, we can bring the next, next Google to, to our community. Uh, now, you know, you have to be a place with, enough software engineers and you often have to be a place with good you know airline service because executives want to move around they want to get in and out you have to have a place you know a good infrastructure good broadband all that kind of stuff so a lot you know a lot of rural places a place like susanville is not going to get the next google sadly um they just don't you know they don't have those basic uh the basic infrastructure and you know the the, the enough employees who are qualified to do the jobs that are you know, needed in those kind of businesses. So um, clearly some limits there. Yes, yes, absolutely. So yeah, all, it's always interesting, I guess, the fact that we do focus on a, a town or a city each each, uh, each week means that we invariably then talk about, you know, local or regional economic development. Um, it really is a, a, really is a fascinating uh, topic and, and kind of you know is the third leg really when we talk about the economy as a whole and then we talk about business um, and company news then we have you know the actual location so it's uh, it's the place as well as the uh, the, the production um, so Jay I think kind of we're probably on the, the last lap for this week's uh, podcast 
I don't know if you wanted to say a few week, a few words about how busy your week might be uh, next week. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, busy in a good way. We've got uh, the, the Fed uh, earnings, of course, uh, Fed earnings, excuse me, <laughs> the, uh, the Fed uh, policy meeting, FOMC policy meeting coming up on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, and that'll be the, uh, you know, that's that's the centerpiece of the action this week. And we still still got plenty of earnings too. Um, we didn't even get a chance uh, in the podcast to talk about tech earnings, big you know the 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 big five tech players from uh, Silicon Valley, Silicon Seattle. They all reported last week. So if you uh, want to read up on those, um, you know, make sure to check out our issue that's coming out. Um, should be out on Sunday afternoonish, and uh, we have a good chart there too that shows. Um, some of the uh, some of the, the headline numbers from from the tech companies. So uh, yes, lot to uh, lot to digest. Okay, well that sounds good. Well, I guess we we'll uh, we'll sign off there. If you just want to just share where people can find this good stuff. Always, um, um, so it's uh, econweekly.substack.com, or you can email me at j at econweekly.biz. Okay, and I guess it also goes to say, if you enjoy listening to our weekly roundup that we do on the podcast, please give us a, a star rating and uh, and leave us a comment. And certainly if you've got ideas about areas that you'd want us to, to cover, particularly when we're looking at the different regions and cities that we, we focus on, um, we, you know, we invite all suggestions. Yep, and you can find this podcast in pretty much any of the, you know, Apple, uh, iTunes and Google, uh, whatever they do what is it the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. stitcher and google podcasts and uh yeah what are your whatever your uh your favorite podcast distribution outlet is we're there um okay all right jay well listen let's let's sign off for now and uh, we'll be back in may uh, which is incredibly starts on on, on, this, on sunday um and uh, we'll uh, we'll be back uh, next week almost halfway week. through 2022 already okay cheers bye